from Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. New analysis calculates that just 90 companies have created nearly two-thirds of all human-generated greenhouse gases since the Industrial Revolution. You can fit the presidents of these entities on two Greyhound buses. We have to get their help in solving the problem as opposed to just being passive and profitable bystanders to continued climate destabilization. Also a trip to a community farm to help glean the last of the fall harvest to give to hungry people. I love the gleaners. Okay, they come and bring me fresh vegetables from their garden, and I give them out here in the pantry to the community, and everybody loves it. It's real food from Mother Earth, from loving hands that planted it, and it's going to fall real good in the stomach. <laughs> that and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. One bright outcome from the recent U.N. climate negotiations in Warsaw is final agreement on the rules to reduce emissions from the destruction and degradation of forests known as RED. The loss of tropical forests is a major part of human-induced global warming, and since 2007, negotiators have been hammering out a way to address the problem. Now there's what's called the Warsaw Framework for RED, and the next task is to work out broad funding. Here to tell us more is Steve Schwartzman, the Tropical Forest Director for the Environmental Defense Fund. Well, I think what the international climate negotiation needs most of all is the kind of thing that happened in Warsaw around forests. This is a case where poor developing countries and emerging economies and richer developed countries agreed on concrete steps that are going to allow them to achieve some emissions reductions in a way that works for everybody. That gets over this interminable back and forth about who goes first and who's responsible, and it finds us a win-win solution that allows the world to move forward on an important aspect of fighting climate change. So remind us exactly how does RED work? What's the basic concept here? The basic concept is that a tropical forest country or a state or a province that can reduce its overall deforestation below historical levels uh, should be able to be compensated either by public sector donors, by other countries, or uh, eventually by carbon markets for making those reductions. So what exactly was decided in Warsaw when it comes to RED? Well, the parties to the international climate negotiation decided on basic technical principles for countries to be able to be compensated for reducing their deforestation. So they decided what countries need to do to show that they're monitoring and measuring and verifying their forests, their forest carbon stocks and the emissions from those, and how to set reference levels, which is the basis for getting results-based compensation. They also agreed that results-based compensation is going to be calibrated in carbon. That's really good because it means that when there's a robust enough carbon market to be able to accommodate reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation, this will fit right in. How new is this? The principle has been around for a long time. There's never been a real agreement on overarching guiding principles for what countries need to do in terms of monitoring and measurement and setting reference levels to allow this to go forward. Now there is. How big of a deal is this in terms of emissions, do you think? Well, overall, 
Land use change, including tropical deforestation and agriculture, account for about 30% of all the, the emissions annually. Just deforestation is probably around half of that. So that's on the order of the emissions from all of the trains and cars and buses and trucks and airplanes in the world. So it's right after burning us uh, fossil fuels as a source. So it's a big deal. Now, where is the funding for this going to come from? Well, there's already about $700 million a year that's been approved by different donor governments to fund this kind of approach. I think ultimately we're going to see carbon markets investing even more than that going forward. And where exactly does the money go? I know that some people are concerned that uh, the local people who traditionally rely on forests for their livelihood aren't really seeing the financial benefits from RED, might not really see that. Well, since RED is really only starting in a couple places, nobody is really seeing the financial benefits yet. Ultimately, for this to work, landowners who have rights to deforest that they're willing to forego in exchange for compensation, as well as forest communities like indigenous peoples who have always protected the forest, and governments that are doing a good, responsible job of taking care of their forest estates, all need to benefit. So what do you see as the challenges now for RED uh, as it goes forward from here? Well, I think it is still a major challenge that so far there is no single compliance or regulated market that actually accepts credit for reducing deforestation. It's very important that governments like Norway, Germany, the UK, and the US have committed public sector funding for these things. But we've seen in the past that counting on public sector funding over time for a large-scale payment for ecosystem services programs is typically pretty dicey. So, in other words, you're looking for the private sector to get in here? Yeah. Ultimately, we need really serious private sector involvement to make RED work. Steve Schwartzman is the Director of Tropical Forest Programs at the Environmental Defense Fund. Thanks for taking the time today, Steve. Thank you, Steve. As the recent U.N. negotiations remind us, solving the climate crisis has become a massive undertaking involving the whole world. But a new study shows that most of the global warming emissions that led to the present situation come from just 90 enterprises. Richard Heady of the Climate Accountability Institute in Colorado led a team that compiled the data that reveals just which entities supplied fossil fuels from the start of the Industrial Revolution to the present. He joins me now on the line. Welcome to Living on Earth. It's my pleasure to be with you, Steve. So why did you do this project? What got you started with this research? Well, because we wanted to, in essence, trace most of humanity's emissions of carbon dioxide and methane that come from industrial sources such as fossil fuel consumption, back to the extracting entities that had started the whole process. So we looked at a threshold of 8 million tons of carbon per year in a recent year for the major entities, oil and gas and coal producers, as well as cement producers, and looked back over their historical self-reported production so we can base it on their own reported data. Now, all this research looks like it involved a massive amount of work. How were you able to do all of this? Steve, um, I had colleagues at various universities at Cambridge, at the British Library in London, in Sydney, in Johannesburg, Berkeley, to look at collections of annual reports housed in business libraries. Unfortunately, most of them aren't cataloged, so we had to go in person to the dusty stacks and find the old reports for most of these investor-owned companies going back to the early 1900s, sometimes even earlier than that. Tell me about your process and what it was like. And 
How did you account for emissions from the uh, 1800s? So we take their produced fuels reported either in annual reports or in company histories and other sources, and we know how much carbon is in oil and gas fairly accurately. We also wanted to track how much carbon was in the coals because that varies by heating value and coal rank. So we document as carefully as possible what kind of fuel and where it was produced so we can track the carbon from the fuels produced into what was actually combusted by consumers. And for that, we had to also deduct for non-energy uses of fossil fuels, particularly petroleum, that goes into petrochemicals and um, lubricants and wax, because we want to deduct for the carbon stored in long-lived products and just focus on tracing the emissions to the atmosphere back to the fuels produced. So after all this review, what exactly did you find? We found that for these 90 entities that we call carbon majors, 81 of which are investor-owned or state-owned corporations, that they had produced 63% of all the carbon emitted to the atmosphere since 1751, and we traced each fuel to each company. So how was that distributed throughout these 90 entities? They were fairly evenly divided between the nine government-run industries in Poland, for example, in the coal industry, coal produced in China. So there you have nation-states in nine cases, former Soviet Union, for example. And we also have 31 state-owned oil and gas companies like Saudi Aramco and Pemex, and 50 investor-owned companies such as Shell and BP and ENI and Total that we all know about. So who were the largest polluters? The largest investor-owned and state-owned companies are Chevron and ExxonMobil, followed by Gazprom and Saudi Aramco and Shell and BP, roughly in that order. And together they account for what percentage of overall emissions, would you say? Well, if we take the top 10, um, they're responsible for about 13% together. If we take all the investor-owned companies, they're responsible for 22% of all global emissions of CO2 since 1751. And the largest of that is Chevron, and they're 3.5%. How many of these companies are still operating today? Nearly all of them. We did trace some of the emissions back to companies whose assets upon dissolution, like British Coal, we weren't able to trace to existing companies. But almost all of these companies are still in existence, in part because we tried to include mergers and acquisitions by the existing companies. So Chevron, for example, has merged with Texaco in the early 2000s. Texaco and Chevron absorbed Getty Oil and Gulf Oil, etc. So we try to include previous companies that were merged or absorbed. What do you make of this finding? It seems like an awfully small number. You can fit the directors and presidents of these entities on two Greyhound buses. It's a small number, and it highlights that there are just a few dozen individuals and boards of corporations that can make different choices in dealing with solving the climate. I think they can have a vast positive influence on how we deal with climate change. We have to seize the opportunity now to get their help in solving the problem as opposed to just being passive and profitable bystanders to continued climate destabilization. And I think shareholders will all notice which of these companies become leaders in the climate change arena and which become laggards. And we can choose between the two more wisely. In the end, what do you hope comes out of your research? that we focus more attention on how to deal with existing proven reserves. We have three times as much improved reserves as the atmosphere can afford to absorb to protect climate stability. 
And of course, the international climate negotiations have a very positive role to play here. But so do producers who have the ear of politicians, as well as of their shareholders, and can influence how resources are produced and distributed and used. And we have a data set now of 90 entities, what kind of fuels and emissions are traceable to them year by year. So it will be a useful way to devise a metric on how to reduce emissions in the future. Maybe there's some obligation by the 90 carbon majors to reduce their emissions over time in concordance with their historic emissions in the past. Rick Heady is the co-director of the Climate Accountability Institute. Thanks for joining us, Rick. Thanks. It was my pleasure, Steve. Coming up, why some scientists might need lawyers. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Time now to check in with Peter Dykstra, publisher of the Daily Climate and Environmental Health News, for a few items from beyond the headlines. He joins us on the line now from Conyers, Georgia. Hi there, Peter. Hi there, Steve. Uh, We're taking a look this week at climate science, and when it collides with politics, it can get ugly and it can get a little surreal. First, we'll look at something that's going on in North Carolina. The state last year, the state legislature, took a very bold step regarding sea level rise. They outlawed it. They outlawed it. Sounds like uh, King Canute, uh, the old Danish king, uh, commanding that the seas roll back. Something like that, or parting the seas. The North Carolina legislature has very broad and sweeping powers, apparently. But in June of last year, they voted to block the use of sea level rise data in coastal planning. That does a favor for coastal developers in sort of keeping those sea level rise statistics out of the way of building in coastal towns and along the barrier beach. And, of course, North Carolina's got some beautiful beaches. Indeed. This month, something else happened. The Museum of Natural Sciences in Raleigh, which is funded by the state and run by state employees, rejected a documentary on sea level rise that some scientists and activists had hoped to show there. Uh Uh-huh. So are we looking at the makings of yet another science versus politics train wreck here? Well, the museum director says there was no political interference. There was no pressure. The documentary, which is called Shored Up, has uh, generally received good reviews. It's run in theaters. It's run in other museums. It's being shown elsewhere in, uh, in North Carolina, in fact. But those activists and scientists are a little upset, and they say that uh, they're very surprised to see that sea level rise does not make the grade as a scientific issue for the state's premier science museum. And speaking of scientists, out on the West Coast, uh, there's one of the world's greatest annual science meetings that's come up. And uh, you're going to tell us that there's something new and a bit startling uh, in it this year? Well, every year in early December in San Francisco, there's the spectacle of tens of thousands of Earth and atmospheric scientists in their annual migration to the American Geophysical Union Conference. Probably about 20,000 people, maybe a little bit more than that, will be there this year. And for the first time, there's going to be a little setup for scientists to get free legal advice. Peter, why would scientists need lawyers? Well, most scientists don't need a lawyer, and hopefully they never will. But they, they, with climate science, that's just no longer the case. They've been sucked into the political vortex. They get accused of being money-grubbing con men when they go for grants to do their science. Uh, Sometimes those accusations come from uh, political operatives who make a lot more money than most climate scientists do. Uh, The scientists get their documents subpoenaed by the thousands. That's a new form of harassment. And then there's the case of uh, Michael Mann. 
Uh, Mike is a climate scientist who was on the receiving end of some absolutely unhinged accusations, and he's turned them into a defamation lawsuit that's working its way through the courts right now. Now, Professor Mike Mann's name also came up in another one of the most famous, or should I say infamous, science and politics uh, meltdowns. Four years ago this month, uh, the whole scientific community, particularly climate scientists, were knocked for a loop. Uh, Thousands of climate scientists' emails were hacked or maybe just stolen. This all took place at the University of East Anglia in Britain. Some of Mike Mann's correspondence uh, and emails were among them. And then somehow those emails, somehow, some way, found uh, their way into the hands of the climate skeptics and deniers. They turned them into a political attack. They made a big deal out of a few poorly chosen phrases and and catty remarks. Um, Yep, uh, climate scientists can get catty on the web just like the rest of us. All this happened just before the Copenhagen Climate Conference. Uh, The scientists didn't handle the response very well. But ultimately, uh, there were multiple investigations and inquiries into all of this. And uh, all of those inquiries concluded that climate scientists and climate science weren't the venal, corrupt enterprise that climate deniers would have us believe. So I think stealing those emails was criminal. What happened to the people who did that? Uh, The police treated it like a criminal case. They treated it like a theft, but they never found the perpetrators. And it turned into a sort of a climate science crime story. And you thought all the science was dull. Peter Dykstra is the publisher of The Daily Climate and Environmental Health News. Thanks so much, Peter. Thanks, Steve. Talk to you soon. Much of North America is now settling into the cold, dark time of year. Thanksgiving celebrated the bounty of the harvest, and the farmers' markets have just about all shut down. But that doesn't always mean that farmers' fields are empty. In fact, a lot of perfectly good food often remains. Now, thanks to the age-old but newly popular custom of gleaning, some of the fresh food that would otherwise be wasted is getting to some of the people who need it most. Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom prepared this report, starting in a farm west of Boston. Thanks for coming out today, guys. We're at Waltham Fields Community Farm. So we are going to harvest some lettuce and maybe some collard greens as well. Matt Crawford welcomes a group of five volunteers in the parking lot of a small farm 10 miles west of Boston. They've come to glean to collect the last of this year's greens to donate to a food pantry the produce that would otherwise go to waste. Matt leads the gleaners out to the long, furrowed fields. Most of them are empty now, rows of soil waiting for the spring planting. But four rows at the end are covered in a long, white, gauzy sheet. Matt pulls back the fabric to reveal perfect heads of red and green leaf lettuce. In the summer, they would easily fetch two or three dollars a piece at the farmer's market. I'm sure most of you have harvested lettuce before, but I'll show you the best way to do it. Carefully grab it, pull it back, tilt it away from the ground, from the earth, and cut it right at the base so you leave the roots in the ground and then you prune off any of the more dirty or dead looking leaves, anything that's yellow, and then we'll put it right into a bag. There's uh, stuff besides lettuce, leave that, we're just going for the lettuce? Just the lettuce, yeah, all this other stuff is weeds, which are actually edible, but we're not going to eat them. Volunteer Bruce Bell gets to work at the top of the row, crouching down to cut the lettuce with a small, sharp knife. This is a beautiful one. A few dead leaves, some dirt, but more or less a beautiful head of lettuce. I'm I'm a gardener also, and I wish I could do things as good as this. 
come out here to admire everything else that's so beautiful, even at this late season. A few dead leaves here, throw them off, brush off the dirt, and in we go. So why do you do it? Why do you like coming out here? Um, I like the exercise. I like the fresh air. I like the connection it makes to other people, that everyone should eat as well as I do, and I think I eat pretty well, and this is one way to help that along. You see how much, I wouldn't call it waste, but so much in the food chain that could go to waste if we weren't doing this. I think the farmers have big hearts, and they don't want to see food go to waste. Zena Porter is one of the farmers at the Waltham Fields Community Farm. Porter says by this time of year, they no longer have a market for the produce left in the fields. At the end of the season, we reach a point where our staff levels drop off. We've met most of the demands of our CSA, and if it's been a good season, we still have some food in the field, and um, that food needs to go somewhere. And so, you know, we call on the gleaners to come and get the last of what's out in the fields so it doesn't go to waste. This community farm is run as a nonprofit, and giving back to the community is part of their mission. But Porter says there are also practical reasons for getting as much as possible out of the fields. Sometimes it's really important to clean out your fields. It's important to get, you know, anything that might carry disease through the winter out of your fields. There's a lot of insects that overwinter in certain crops, and if you leave that crop to rot there, that pest can overwinter, it's going to be there again in the spring. And um, I think there's probably some motivation in that as well. Gleaning is an ancient tradition. It's referred to in the Torah and the Bible. Leviticus chapter 19 instructs, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. Gleaning continued into the 19th century as a social safety net throughout much of Europe. Today, there are gleaning organizations in Europe and the U.S. Duck Caldwell is executive director of the Boston Area Gleaners. This year, we're going to recover over 70,000 pounds. That equals close to, when you convert that to four-ounce servings, 300,000 servings of fruit and vegetable. Caldwell says they pick at least 30 varieties of produce. All kinds of greens, eggplant, peaches, carrots, apples, turnips, squash, anything you might find in a farmer's market can be gleaned when there's a good harvest. We're going to serve about 25 farms this year with our gleaning. There are well over a thousand in this area, so the potential is, is huge. You know, we're doing a good job meeting the demand we're getting currently from farmers, but the demand on the side where people actually need this food, there's much more there. So. There's a lot, a lot of work to be done. After three hours of work, the volunteers picked 576 pounds of lettuce. They pack the harvest into banana boxes and load them into a van for delivery. Roughly half of what's gleaned goes to the nonprofit Food for Free, which distributes to 86 food banks from its headquarters in Cambridge. Sasha Purpura is the executive director. Food for Free is an organization that essentially captures food that would otherwise go to waste, perfectly good, healthy food, and then distributes it into the emergency food system where it can reach those in need. Food for Free staff make daily rounds to local grocery stores to collect good food that would be thrown away at the end of the day. But she says what the gleaner supply is special. By far, the gleaner's food is, without question, the absolute best food we can get. It's the freshest, it's local, it's the people who are receiving it 
love fresh vegetables as much as anybody else does. Papura says it's relatively rare for food pantries to have access to fresh local produce. A lot of food pantries can get food from food banks, but it's typically shelf-stable, canned stuff. And it's very hard for small food pantries or other things to carry produce because they don't necessarily have the storage for it. They need it on the day that the pantry's opening. It's volunteer run. And because the gleaners and Food for Free can deliver day of, it really allows them to offer more than just canned sodium-enhanced stuff. In the basement of the Food for Free office is a food pantry that serves hungry people in Cambridge. Sasha leads the way and introduces me to Ada Navarro, the food pantry manager. How are you? I am. What gave it away? <laughs> Ada has a kind face and an affectionate manner. I love the gleaners. Okay, they come and bring me fresh vegetables from their garden, and I give them out here in the pantry to the community, and everybody loves it. Why do you think they love it? Because it's real food from Mother Earth, from loving hands that planted it, and it's going to fall real good in the stomach. <laughs> a volunteer, Freddie, stands amid boxes of produce and offers them to a small, frail, elderly woman named Anne. We have um, we want potatoes, onions, we have collard greens. Greens. You want collard greens? Uh, yeah. Lettuce, you have lettuce? We have a spring mix, so we have a, um, you want a spring mix or this? A spring mix. Terrific. You want green pepper? Sure. So whatever you can. It's very good things. Do you like the, the fresh uh, produce, ma'am? Absolutely. It's the best. Why is that? Well, very expensive. It's something you're hard to get. So I like it very much. Thanks sure. What kind of things do you typically get this time of year? Anything green. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's what they do is it's so important for us. I get things I couldn't afford. I get a lot of greens. It fills in spots I would not otherwise neglect. And it is a little gift, so it makes people happy. Visitors to the food pantry are young and old, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, and everything in between. Ada greets a familiar face. Come on, baby, we know. Rudolph West is a tall 63-year-old, missing most of his teeth, wearing an oversized trench coat. He says he's never heard of the gleaners, but he loves the idea. I think it's a beautiful thing. It's, it's really it's charitable, and uh, someone's taking the initiative to try to do something for others. West lives at the Y and says he doesn't have access to cooking facilities, so he can't use the vegetables. But he's touched by the thought of the gleaners collecting food for the less fortunate. It's very helpful, and it's good to be charitable. You know, pay your tithes. You know, that, that, that's my motto. So. I'm a very religious person, you know, which is a personal bond, but I hold dearly in my heart, and sometimes it's touching, and I shed tears over stuff like that. It shows how you can show piety like Jesus had. He was humble and submissive, and that's a good trait, a good characteristic, and I like that. So a charitable tradition that dates back to before the time of Jesus is alive and well here in Massachusetts, thanks to generous farmers and volunteers. For Living on Earth, I'm Bobby Bascom at the Food for Free Pantry in Cambridge.
Of all seabirds, one of the most charming and funny must be the puffin, with its black and white plumage and its amazing bright beak. But Atlantic puffins had disappeared from some of their traditional range until an enterprising scientist who loved the birds had an idea. Here's Mary McCann with bird notes. They had been gone from the island for a hundred years. But in 1973, Dr. Stephen Kress reintroduced six Atlantic puffin chicks to Eastern Egg Rock, an island in Maine's Muskongas Bay. He nurtured them by leaving fish in their underground burrows. A few weeks later, the birds fledged, departing at night for the open sea. Knowing puffins returned to the spot where they fledge, he and his team waited. For four years, no puffins returned. Here's Dr. Kress. So in 1977, I began trying to think more like a puffin, and I began to try to imagine what it must be like for a puffin that would head off to sea, come back, and find no other puffins at the island. And of course, there hadn't been any puffins for 100 years, so what would this puffin think? Would it even take a chance about coming ashore? And I began to realize that normally a young puffin coming home would find other puffins. It would be attracted to them, perhaps interact with them, and become comfortable at that location. And I was concerned that maybe some of my puffins were coming back but not coming ashore. And that's when I decided that I would uh, try to um, put out some decoys. The decoys worked. Now the island, with much continuing work by Dr. Kress and Project Puffin, is home to more than 100 nesting pairs. I'm Mary McCann. There are photos at our website, LOE.org. Coming up, searching for proof that the dog you love really loves you back. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for the coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Most people who have a dog are sure their dog loves them. Why else would their pooch seem so sad when they leave and be so tail-bangingly happy when they return? Now a researcher is using MRI brain scans to offer scientific proof that dogs indeed have emotions similar to those of humans. Gregory Burns, a professor of neuroeconomics at Emory University, recently wrote a book called How Dogs Love Us, a neuroscientist and his adopted dog decode the canine brain. Professor Burns joins me now from Atlanta, Georgia. But before we talk about dogs and their emotions, tell me, what exactly is a neuroeconomist? A neuroeconomist is someone like me who uses neuroscience technology to understand human decision-making. How did you come up with the idea to study the canine brain using an MRI machine? A uh, funny story. Well, funny and sad story, I guess. It was a couple of years ago after one of my favorite dogs passed away. It was a, a pug named Newton, and he had lived to the ripe old age of almost 15. And it was kind of remarkable, you know, after 15 years with, with such a dog, you come pretty attached to them. And 
I think it got me wondering what Newton had been thinking all those years and whether he had anything like the feelings that I had for him. Could we actually use the technology that I had been using in humans and train it on the canine brain to try to understand how the dog's mind actually worked? So tell me, how are dog brains and human brains different? When you look at them, at first glance, there's some very obvious differences. And in fact, you don't need an MRI to know that the dog brain is quite a bit smaller than the human brain. Um, you know, but in the world of neuroscience and brain, size is not necessarily everything. So once you kind of take size out of the equation, then the things you notice is that uh, the dog brain has a very large part of its brain devoted to smell, and we call it the olfactory bulb. And it's kind of this projection that comes out of the front of the brain that kind of sits above the nose in the dog. Now, humans have kind of tiny, tiny little olfactory bulbs. In fact, you have to look really hard to find them on an MRI. But in a dog, it's probably about 10% of the brain. Now, that says what's different, but there's also a lot that's in common. And in fact, all mammalian brains have many structures in common. And when you look at certain parts of the brain, like the brain stem and parts of the brain called the limbic system and the basal ganglia, these are common to pretty much all mammals and, and many non-mammals as well. And so that exists in the dog just like humans. So now this part of the brain is called the caudate region. You're yes. Saying. And this is common This is common to dogs and people. It's common to dogs, people, monkeys, chimps, rats. Every mammal has this part of the brain. And it basically serves a, a fundamental function of being a living, breathing animal, which is that you have to know what's good and what's bad and approach those things that are good and run away from those things that are not good. So... In humans, when we do these experiments, you know, we show people things like money or they get money or food that they like, and you can ask them what are they feeling, what kind of emotions are associated with that. Almost always, it's some kind of positive emotion. And of course, you point to a basic problem. People tell you they like these things, but dogs, at least my dog, doesn't really talk that precisely. Exactly. And that's the whole reason doing the fMRI in dogs. So the idea of the project then is that by training the dogs to go in the scanner and holding still enough to do this, if we can show them things that they like that are similar, then we can uh, use their brain activation as a kind of way to bridge between the dog and the human world. So tell me about the dogs in this experiment. You had your dog, Callie, and another dog, Mackenzie. What were they like? So Callie is kind of terrier mix, and the other dog, the initial two dogs, uh, the other one was a border collie named Mackenzie. So explain uh, the two experiments that were used in this project for me. The original experiment was just a proof of concept because nobody thought this would work. So our first experiment was to prove that we could do this and that we could get interpretable data from the dog's brain. And for that experiment, we trained the dogs on two hand signals. So one hand signal meant you're going to get a piece of hot dog, and another hand signal meant no hot dog. We purposely picked something that was easy with a high chance of success. And because we knew about the caudate nucleus in humans, we also knew to look there in the dog brain. So the theory was that if the dogs are understanding hand signals, we should see activity in this part of the brain to the hand signal that means they're going to get food. 
So these have to be really stinky hot dogs, right? Well, it's funny you should bring that up because actually the earliest version of this experiment we did was we actually had peas, you know, like the vegetable, a pea and a hot dog because we thought, well, obviously dogs are going to like the hot dogs more than peas. And that experiment actually didn't work. There was no difference in brain activity between peas and hot dogs. And we then realized after we did it that the dogs actually didn't care that much what they were eating. They just liked to eat the food. Professor, talk to us a little bit about the sniff experiment, how dogs uh, tease out the difference between their owners and others, and, and other dogs for that matter. Sure. So one of our later experiments is getting away from hand signals and getting closer to what we think the dog's primary sense is, which is smell. So one of the things that we've done is present smells to the dogs while they're in the scanner. And in, in the initial experiment, we presented five smells. Uh, we, we presented the scent of a familiar human in the household, a familiar dog in the household, and then we had unfamiliar people, unfamiliar dogs, and then we actually presented the dog's own scent to them while they were in the scanner. So what we've seen now, and, and now we've done this in 12 dogs, is that, again, the same part of the brain, the caudate nucleus, seems to react exclusively in this experiment to the scent of a familiar human. And that's pretty remarkable because the scent of the human is, was obtained from not the person who was actually handling the dog at the scanner, but from someone else in the household. So that means that the dogs recognize that scent. They have some memory for that person who's not there physically. They're under distance in time and space, and that it seems to be associated with a positive, you call it positive emotional response. So, Professor, summarize for me the results uh, that you obtain in the work that you describe in the book here. We're, we're kind of left with two big results, I would say. So the first is that we can, you know, demonstrate this positive response, first for hand signals, meaning hot dogs, but more importantly, with regards to smells, that it also transfers to the smell of people that the dog lives with. And this is important because kind of going into that, we didn't know whether the dog's primary bond, if you will, in a household full of dogs and people would be with the people or with their fellow canine companions. You know, every other species out there bonds pretty much exclusively with what we call conspecifics, members of the same species. And now we're seeing right here with the brain data that dogs seem, at least the dogs in our study seem more bonded with the people in their household than the other dogs. And this to me is incredibly important because it shows the social flexibility of dogs and their ability to kind of bond to people first and foremost. Professor, how does your dog project clarify the human-canine relationship, do you think? Well, we're trying to understand the dog-human relationship from the dog's perspective. And, I mean, specifically, we are looking at brain responses in the dog as the dog's interacting with a human. And this, this is quite remarkable because now that we've done our initial experiments and proven that we can get quality data, now we're doing much more sophisticated experiments and questions. So, for example, currently right now we're trying to understand how the dog's brain responds to these hand signals, whether it's given by the owner or whether it's given by a stranger or even whether these signals are given by a computer we're already beginning to see differences in response of the caudate nucleus as well as other brain regions depending on who's giving the signal. Professor, when the owner showed the hot dog sign versus a stranger showing the hot dog sign, what was the difference? 
So this is brand new work. So this is kind of just rolling right off the scanner this week. It varies by the dog. So some of our dogs seem to essentially have caudate responses primarily, if not exclusively, to when the owner gives the signal and not to when a stranger does. And then other dogs, um, I guess you could say, are a little bit more promiscuous about it and don't seem to care as much about which human gives the signal. Although most all of them do seem to have stronger responses when the human gives the signal than when a computer does. Your project also focused on attempting to discover if canines have what's known as theory of mind. First, tell us what is theory of mind, and then tell us if you think dogs have this, and, and what would be its value? Sure. So theory of mind is this idea. It's, it's thought about mostly in regards to humans. So theory of mind is a form of what we would call mentalizing. So far, only humans have been definitively identified as having that. Now, it's very controversial whether other species have this capacity. What this would mean is that dogs um, have some representation, not just of what their humans are doing, but also what their humans are thinking or feeling. So what implications do you think there are ethically and, and say even legally to your work discovering how the canine brain works? There are all sorts of implications, not just legally, but also just practically. So on the practical level, we're trying to understand, and, and in fact, we're finding out, you know, for example, why certain dogs are better matched to certain people. And this, this is incredibly important for training. It's important for developing service dogs and working dogs and how they interact with humans. It's important for understanding behavioral problems that occur in dogs, which separation anxiety is one of the biggest problems that dog owners face. But on a kind of the legal plane, it's, it's incredibly complicated. So I've argued that because we're finding brain responses that look very similar to human brain responses, that so much so that we can begin to infer that the dogs are experiencing emotions in many ways like we do, that this argues for treating them as something more than property. Let's go back to the question of dog rights for a moment here. Um, well, so what about dog rights? At one point, you, uh, as you're telling the story, you say you decide the dogs would uh, have to volunteer, that they would have to make it clear that they were participating voluntarily in all of this. So we wanted the dogs to do this of their own free will. And when I say of their own free will, what that means is the dogs are not sedated. They're not restrained in any way. So that means that they have to walk into the scanner and lay down completely on their own. And by doing so, that means that they want to be there. So we came up with this principle of self-determination, which was borrowed from the human research literature. One of the ones that is most sacred in a human is if you volunteer to be in an experiment, you have the right to withdraw from the experiment. We decided we were going to implement that for the dogs as well. By the way, how could the study of the canine brain also help human health? Well, if you accept what I'm saying, that there are, are many commonalities between the dog brain and the human brain, both in structure and function, you also immediately realize that they experience many of the same problems that humans do, I mean, and speaking specifically emotionally. So one of the things that we've noticed um, with regards primarily to anxiety, you know, studying separation anxiety in dogs may very well teach us other anxiety disorders in humans. 
Gregory Burns is a professor of neuroeconomics at Emory University in Atlanta. His new book is called How Dogs Love Us, a neuroscientist and his adopted dog decode the canine brain. Thanks so much, Professor, for taking this time. My pleasure. And if you want to see some video of his experiments, please go to our website, LOE.org. The question of how dogs feel and think isn't the only deep mystery being investigated at Emory University. Ari Daniel reports in this latest installment of our Small Matters series, scientists there are also probing the profound mysteries of how patterns and structures form and evolve. It's a perfect day here. Jay Goodwin walks over to a bench to sit down, and he can't help but be reminded about a day just like this one, five years ago in western Michigan, where he used to live. I was outside. I think I was going for a walk, just to kind of clear my head a little bit. I turned a corner, and I saw this flock of birds, and they took off into the sky, and they started to form a shape, sort of an amorphous shape, and it was one that was dynamic and it was changing, but it had a boundary to it, like looking at a blob of oil and water. It stopped Goodwin in his tracks, several hundred birds pulsing and dipping and soaring to an invisible beat in the sky. It wasn't clear what they were responding to. There weren't any predator birds in the sky, and you never got the sense that there was anything that was directing it from within. There was no leader bird that they were all following, but just watching it was sort of... You know, well, it was beautiful. Goodwin realized he had no way of predicting the flock's behavior by simply taking lots of individual birds flapping their wings and adding them up. Rather, it was something that emerged once all these birds threw themselves together. And it's this notion of emergence, how really complex patterns and properties can arise from combining somewhat simple units that now defines how Goodwin thinks about his real work, chemistry. Goodwin heads into his lab at Emory University. He's a chemist here, and since seeing that flock, he's come to appreciate how molecules are a lot like birds. That is, you get to know how the individuals behave and parade on their own, but then you put them together, and often something new and astonishing emerges. We always want to allow some room for, for serendipity allowing the molecules themselves to show us what they're capable of doing. Let's take an example, a glass of water. Water molecules in the liquid form are tumbling past each other, and they see each other, if you will, very dynamically, very quickly, and they move on. Now, cool that water down. The movement of the water molecules begins to slow, and they spend more time kind of looking at each other. And they begin to align with each other and become solid and they grab more water molecules out of solution as they slow down, and that process begins to propagate and to grow until the whole thing is one big lattice of solid ice. And the thing about ice, it floats on water. We take that for granted, but most solids sink to the bottom of their liquid form because they're more dense, but not water. It floats, which is crucial for life. Underneath ice, in a lake or an ocean, or the Arctic, is liquid water. That's one of the unique features of water. That's an emergent property. Emergent because it's just what happens when you throw a bunch of water molecules together and cool them down. Now, Goodwin doesn't study water. He's curious about other things, like how in the brains of people with Alzheimer's, a single misshapen protein can trigger neighboring proteins to buckle and warp until a tangled plaque has emerged, like an errant bird reshaping its entire flock. 
Goodwin also studies what might have happened on the Earth a few billion years ago, trying to learn the rules of how simple molecules might have assembled to lead to the emergence of life. Emergence, it turns out, is everywhere. There's no particular reason why emergence should be a property that happens at the scale of uh, atoms and molecules, but not at the scale of, let's say, viruses or even galaxies for that matter. Paul Goldbart is a physicist at Georgia Tech who studies how the building blocks of matter interact to form the very small, the very big, and everything in between. He says it's like watching a dance, knowing that the whole isn't just greater than the sum of the parts, it's wondrously different. We marvel at the way matter organizes. Not only do we get to see beauty and organization and patterns, but also they're useful to a better society and provide services and materials that make our lives safer and more vibrant. Back in the lab, this is exactly what Jay Goodwin is doing, harnessing the idea of emergence by putting molecules together and watching what happens, by creating room for his chemistry to surprise him, and then turning those insights to use. To understanding disease and how to solve disease and how to develop new therapeutics and how to create new materials that could be intelligent, that could respond to their environments in different ways. It could be self-healing, could capture solar energy, for instance. Goodwin's aim has become one of taking advantage of the rules that determine how molecules behave, rules that are somewhat mysterious and can emerge when you take the time to appreciate that they're there. For Living on Earth, I'm Ari Daniel. Our series, Small Matters, is produced by the Center for Chemical Evolution with support from the National Science Foundation and NASA. Next time on Living on Earth, all kinds of people take on the challenge of climbing to the highest point in each state. We've had the youngest person to reach a high point, Natalie Smith, is 11 days old, 35 minutes, that was the state of Pennsylvania. Dave Johnson has done all 50 state high points in the winter. That's quite an accomplishment. A day out with the high pointers, next time on Living on Earth. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Catherine Rodway, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Jennifer Marquis, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth, and we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by a friend of the nation, where you can read such environmental writers as Wen Stevenson, Bill McKibben, Mark Hertzgard, and others at thenation.com. This is PRI, Public Radio International. PRI, Public Radio International.